Good morning, everyone. Our Bible reading this morning is taken from 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter is towards the end of the Old Testament. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Well, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and dispose of and despise authority. Bold and arrogant, these men are not afraid to slander celestial beings. Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not bring slanderous accusations against such beings in the presence of the Lord. But these men blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like brute beasts, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like beasts, they too will perish. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech, who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These men are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them, for they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him.
If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn to their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. Amen. Good morning, everybody. a nice bright reading just to start the morning off isn't it it actually is when you look at it in context it actually is an encouraging passage but there's some strong words in there let's pray as we look at this part of the bible heavenly father we ask that as we look at your word now um, lord we pray that we would hear the warning that we need to hear lord we pray that we would be reminded again of the importance of the gospel of jesus and please help us to hold to it we pray in jesus name amen People speak lies about Christianity all the time. It just happens everywhere all the time. But what's worse is when they speak lies about Christianity with their Bible open. And maybe from a platform or a position or in a relationship where you think you can trust them. In today's passage, Peter says we shouldn't be surprised when people speak lies about Christianity, about Jesus. 2 verse 1, you should expect it. But in 2 verse 1, it comes from people who are among you. And in 2 verse 1, you can expect it to be secret, subtle, sneaky, maybe hard to pick up at first glance. And then the bulk of the rest of this chapter says, don't tolerate lies like that because God doesn't. He judges. And that's it. That's 2 Peter 2. After almost 20 years of working in Presbyterian churches, I think I've worked out how to do a short sermon. (laughs) No, but that's it, isn't it? That's the warning here. Expect lies from among you even, from people you might trust, and don't tolerate it because God doesn't. When you read that in context, when you read chapter 2 in context, you start to appreciate just how damaging lies about Jesus can be. Where lies about Christianity do the most damage is when they teach Christians to be normal. That's when these lies are most damaging. When they teach Christians to be people who fit in rather than be holy, rather than stand out and belong to God. It's when there's lies that teach you you don't need to change. Come as you are and stay as you are that kind of idea. They're the most damaging lies because what they do is they deny two things. They deny the fact that Jesus saves us. They deny Jesus as our saviour. There's nothing to save you from, no need to change. And they deny or undercut Jesus' authority as our Lord, our master, the one we obey, the one we serve. And when you move from serving yourself to serving Jesus, life changes. They're the most damaging lies. The lies that as 
Christians who just stay normal. If you take away what it means for Jesus to be our saviour, if you take away what it means for Jesus to be our Lord, then you return to living the way you were before you became a Christian. It would be like getting a pig, washing the mud off it, cleaning it up, and then seeing it return to the mud. Isn't that where the passage ends up? Look down at... This is 2 verse... 2 Peter 2 verse 22. It's just easy to remember. 2, 2, 2, 2. And it's one of those verses that you should really have up in your house somewhere framed. It goes, a dog returns to its vomit. It's just a really nice verse. It's actually quoting a proverb that goes on to say, so a fool returns to their folly. As a dog goes back to its vomit, so a fool goes back to their folly. And then it goes on, and a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. Like all the proverbs, this, it kind of you know, condenses down something about us as people. We just do that. We just keep going back to doing the same thing again and again. It's like water runs downhill. So we kind of you know, fall back into the same way of doing things. It's habitual. It's almost you can't stop it. it. When Peter uses that proverb in 2 Peter 2 verse 22, he's describing the character of false teachers. He's got another description for them. If you just go up a little bit to verse 19, 2 verse 19. These false teachers, what they do is they hold out freedom. They promise freedom while they themselves are slaves to depravity that just keep going back to the vomit, back to the mud. They hold out freedom when they've got nothing to offer. They're slaves to their own depravity. They're addicted. They can't get out. And yet they hold up this idea of freedom. You can be free if you whatever it is they're saying. And when you frame it like that, that these false teachers are offering freedom, then you start to see where some of these lies take you. This idea of freedom, you know, free to be me. Whatever makes you happy, just you're free. And so church becomes a place where you're allowed to be yourself, serve yourself. And somewhere we lose the plot and forget that actually we're serving Jesus. He is our Lord. So verse 19, these false teachers, they promise freedom when they themselves are enslaved to the mud. They promise freedom when they've got nothing to offer. The only way that we really become free is when we give up everything, when we say that we will serve Jesus. That's when you really learn what freedom is. You're then free to serve free to serve Jesus with no hindrance. No, you're not stuck in sin any longer. You let go. There's no more guilt. That's the true kind of freedom. So there's two things to have in place when you come to this rather longish chapter of 2 Peter. That's the first thing, this idea of not going back, this, this idea that we, we tend to flow back to the lowest point, return to where we were. That's the first thing to have in place as you look at this chapter. The second thing is a little bit of Old Testament knowledge. And this is going to take a little while. So if you're a little bit slow in flipping in your Bible, put your sermon outline or notices into Peter and find Numbers 22. Because this background, it all helps you understand this man Balaam. You know, Balaam and his donkey. Balaam and the talking donkey. It's a fantastic kid's talk. Balaam in um, Joshua... Don't look up Joshua, I'll just tell you what it says there. In Joshua 22, we're told that Balaam, son of Beor, was put to the sword because he practiced divination. Balaam was like a, a mercenary prophet. You pay him, he'll prophesy what you want. That kind of man. 
really nice, good integrity. God knew how to bring justice on this mercenary prophet. So Joshua 13, verse 22, he gets put to death. But the story that Balaam is famous for is the story with his donkey. And that's in, uh, you pick it up in Numbers 22. So by now you've found it. Numbers 22, verse 1. Then the Israelites travelled to the plains of Moab and camped along the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was terrified because there were so many people. This is a Moabite, a Moabite king. He's watching Israel, watching the way that Israel is just ploughing their way through the land, and he's scared, scared, silly. And so down in verse 4, Balak, son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, verse 5, sent messages to summon Balaam, son of Beor. Balak requires the services of Balaam, the mercenary prophet. Um, Jump down to verse 5. This is what he says. A people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I'll be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. So Balak wants to hire the services of Balaam. Come and put a curse on the people of Israel. And down in verse 7, the elders of Moab and Midian left taking with them the fee for divination. There it is. Pay this man. He'll do what you want. He's a mercenary prophet. He's also Balaam. He's an Israelite. So in other words, Balak is asking to pay this man to curse his own people. But Balaam must have a really good reputation. He's such bad, got such a bad reputation, you know that you can pay him to curse even his own people. But there's a problem. Go down now to 22 verse 12. But God said to Balaam, Do not go with the men, these men that have come to take him to go and curse Israel. You must not put a curse on those people because they are blessed. And so in verse 14, the Moabite officials return to Balak the king and go, sorry, Balaam can't do it. And so Balak steps it up. Maybe he raises the fee or something. But things to note at this point. Yes, Balaam told Balak he couldn't curse Israel. Good boy, Balaam. But not because Balaam thought it was a bad idea, but because God told him he Shouldn't. He can't. You can't do that. If Balaam had any heart, if he had any backbone, if he had any loyalty to his nation, he would have said, just get lost, Balak. Forget it. I'm not going to do this. He's not a very nice man, Balaam. And so too, Peter likens Balaam with a brute beast, an unreasonably animal, an unreasonable, sorry, unreasoning animal. You just can't talk reason to this man. In the end... God lets Balaam go with Balak, but God knew that Balaam wouldn't change his heart. And so on the way, God keeps harassing Balaam using this donkey and an angel. And that's where the KFC kids you know, can have fun with a fantastic story about a talking donkey. It's not just in Shrek, it's here in the Bible. I'll leave you to read it. So this is like stealing the best part and leaving it with you. After the incident with the donkey, look at 22 verse 35. The angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but speak only what I tell you. And so off Balaam goes. And each time he's set up to curse Israel, he turns it into a blessing. And you have these four oracles recorded for us in Numbers chapters 23 and 24. And that's where most people stop reading the story of Balaam because we like happy endings. It's a nice positive ending. Balaam yeah, keeps, curse, keeps blessing Israel instead of cursing them. Israel wins. But after these oracles, 
Look at the end of chapter 24, last verse in chapter 24, first verse in chapter 25. So Numbers 24, then Balaam got up and returned home, and Balak went on, their, on his way, like all frustrated, apparently. 25 verse 1, while Israel was, sitting, was staying in Shittim, the people began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women, who invited them to sacrifice to their gods. And the people ate the sacrificial meat, meal and bowed down before those gods. So Israel yoked themselves to Baal and Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. So just in case you missed it, Balak is a Moabite. These women are Moabites. These Moabite women distract Israel and end up seeing them serve Baal. And tremendous, horrible judgment comes on the people of Israel. Guess who was behind that little scheme of the Moabites and the Moabite women? Hey, Balaam. The trick is, you've got to keep reading to see it. So you read ahead, you come to chapter 31 of Numbers, verse 15. Have you allowed all the women to live? He asked them. They were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord. There's Balaam returning to the wallowing in the mud. He can't help himself. Yet he finds a way to give Balak what he's paid for. He can't curse the people of Israel because God's not going to curse his own people. So clever Balaam works out, actually it's easier to target these people and get them to be normal. Get them to be like the nations around. Get them to return to their vomit, wallow in the mud, be like everyone else. That's the kind of sad story of Balaam. And with that background, you now turn back to 2 Peter. And later on sometime, you can correct those Sunday school stories that end at the wrong point with the story of Balaam. And then you come to the sermon outline, you realise it's, I don't know how many minutes in and we haven't got to point one. We're going to go real fast now, okay? 2 Peter 2, it is a warning not to tolerate lies. It's a warning that false teachers, they will pull us back into the way we once were. They will pull us back into sin. They'll pull us back into this wallowing in the mud. And so the outline, sermon outline says, point one, nothing is more danger, uh, damaging than spreading lies about Jesus. And after our first two sermons in 2 Peter, you'd appreciate that, wouldn't you? I mean, back in chapter one, we've had two sermons in it. The first half of chapter one, the big point there is, in knowing Jesus, you have everything you need to live a godly life. In knowing Jesus, you have everything you need to live a godly life. Once you know that Jesus is your Lord and your Saviour, your, your life is turned upside down. There's, you don't lack anything. In your knowledge of Jesus, you have everything to be transformed, to be living for God now and for eternity. It's in knowing Jesus that you have everything. And then you roll into the second half of chapter 2, and Peter is adamant to say, you can trust everything that you've heard about Jesus. Even the prophets, everything the prophets looked forward to, Peter is an eyewitness. He's, he's seen it. He testifies to it. You can trust the gospel of Jesus. And in the gospel of Jesus, you have everything you need for life and godliness. And now in chapter 2, we're seeing there's people who are spreading lies. Lies about Jesus. Lies about the gospel. It undermines, it damages 
any Christian who will hear these lies. But not only that, it damages those who propagate these lies because here in chapter 2, God judges them. Peter, he's coming to the end of his life, you see in 1 verse 14, and he's got this clarity that comes when you can see the end, when you know it's almost over, this, cl- this clarity, and he can see that nothing would be more damaging than to see Christians drawn away from the gospel of Jesus, drawn away from knowing Jesus. Nothing could do more damage than that. Spreading lies about Jesus is damaging to those who listen and it's damaging to those who propagate them. So 2 Peter 2 verse 1 opens with this warning. People will spread lies. They will come. Just like in the Old Testament times there were false prophets, so in these days there will be false teachers. What kind of lies? Well, 2 verse 1, even denying Jesus as master, even denying Jesus as sovereign, denying Jesus as Lord over all. It's going back to the wallowing in the mud, being your own Lord, slave to yourself. It's the kind of lie that you think would be really easy to recognise, really easy to pick out. But in 2 verse 1, it's secretly slipped in there, subtly slipped in there by people who are among you. Peter says these false teachers, they will come. They were there in his day. They'll be there in our day. They will just keep coming. We should expect people to propagate lies about Jesus. It's interesting, this whole chapter of 2 Peter, um, there is a parallel passage in Jude, almost word for word. It's the same warning, the same danger. And so then if you look across this chapter, what Peter does is he gives you these ways to identify these these false teachers because they're among you. They're, They're secretly slipping in. They're he gives you a way of seeing who they are, identifying them. And so here's the identity kit that you need. So in verse 1, that yeah, they'll be secret as they slip in. In verse 2, many will be distracted by them. In verse 3, they make things up. And they exploit people. And then you've got this whole verses 4 to 10 that we'll come back to. But you get to the second half of verse 10, they're bold and they're arrogant. You come into verse 12, they speak about stuff they have no knowledge of. They're unable to take a rebuke. Verse 13, they're self-serving, they're self-pleasing. Verse 14, they're greedy. Then you get the bit about Balaam. Verse 17, they promise lots, but they don't deliver. And then you're back to verse 22. They're stuck in their own sick ways. In fact, just before that, it would be better for them if they hadn't even got a hold of the truth in the first place. You look back over this identity kit and you'll notice, okay, the way to pick these false teachers is you look at their behaviour. You look at the way they treat people. You look at the way they speak about God. You look at their pride and their arrogance and their disregard for Jesus' authority. 2 Peter 2 says, you should expect people like this. Don't tolerate them. But at the same time, we're not the ones who have to solve the problem. God judges them. And so then you come back to verses 4 to 10. And what happens in verses 4 to 10 is God gives, um, Peter gives examples of how our great God knows how to judge. And he can judge while saving. So it's that time of year where you know, the grass is starting to go wild. And you know, I don't know whether it's the right thing to do or not, but you can put chemicals on your grass to kill the weeds. The trick is there's different kinds of grass, isn't there? And so we have this broadleaf grass you put the wrong weed kill on it, you'll wipe out your grass. What you want is you want a weed kill that will kill 
the weeds but spare the grass. You want it to be able to judge like that, to be able to discriminate. Save the good, destroy the rest. That's that sort of discerning judgment. Um, that discrimination in a good sense. That's the kind of picture you've got here. There's examples here of the way God can judge everyone while saving few. He can judge and save in the same action. I think the reference to angels in verse 4, it's probably referring back to the Nephilim back in chapter 6. But here's the good thing. You don't need to even know who they are or what it means because he gives you two more examples. Um, If you look in Jude, he talks in very similar ways so they understood each other. We may not be able to lock in who the angels are, but don't worry about it because the next two examples are in verse 5, it says, God wiped out the whole world but saved Noah and his family. That way God can judge and save in the same action and discern and discriminate. And in verse 6, he wiped out Sodom and Gomorrah, but he saved Lot. And the point of these verses is down there in verse 9. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and hold the unrighteous for judgment on the day of judgment. We can trust that God will judge the false teachers that secretly slip in. We can also trust that God will spare and God will save. So it's out of our hands. That's where, you know, yeah, it sounds like a hard chapter, but it's actually encouraging. We pray and we trust and God does his work. We can trust God to judge And just as importantly, we can trust God to save. And so you look at the chapter then as a whole. We've just gone the quick fly over it. People spread lies about Christianity all the time. What makes it worse is when they're from among, when they've got the Bible open, when they're secretly doing it or subtly doing it from a platform or a position or a relationship where you expect them to be speaking the truth. But in today's passage, uh, Peter gives us ways to recognise it, ways to pick it, and tells us it's okay. God will judge. And God will save. And in a world where we are kind of pressured to be tolerant and accepting of everything, this passage makes you think about and contemplate the virtue of being intolerant. This may not be a politically correct way of speaking, but in the end, truth matters. And we shouldn't tolerate lies because God doesn't. When you think about it, there's all sorts of other things we don't tolerate. I mean, you don't tolerate your kids playing with knives in the kitchen, do you? You put rules around it, borders around it. You don't tolerate people who speed when they're driving. You penalise them. You don't, you don't tolerate drug cheats in sport. There's all sorts of things we do not tolerate. This is more important than any of that. Lies about Jesus undercuts, undermines the gospel message, undercuts who Jesus is as our Lord and Saviour and... It just takes away the very thing, which is everything to us. We shouldn't tolerate people who teach falsehood about Jesus. But as you think about this virtue of intolerance, as Christians, we're not the ones to get in there and fix it and judge it either, are we? God's the one who judges. So we're intolerant, but we're trusting God. Just talk about it. Work out how that actually plays out. And when it comes to the lies that we need to be careful for currently, well, how do you pick them? Big picture-wise, what you're looking for is anything that encourages Christians to be normal rather than holy. Anything that encourages Christians 
not to acknowledge Jesus as Lord over their whole life, to be serving Jesus with everything. And so I, I think you can start to feel the edges around our current potential lies when you talk around gender or equality. I mean, how on earth do we redefine marriage based on being equal and fair? That's strange when God's the one who designed marriage. Um, I think you, you can, you're dancing around the edges of the current lies around Christianity when you talk about abortion and euthanasia and censorship. They're kind of those you know, issues which press hard against values that Christians hold. But then there's the ones that have been around for a lot longer, like the idea of living together before you get married. This, you know, everyone's doing it. It's just normal. That's a lie to say that as Christians that doesn't matter. So 2 Peter 2, this is the, the lies here. They're not the lies outside the church. It's the stuff inside, the stuff that gets in among us and lowers us down to the vomit and the mud. So take care that we keep coming back to the Bible. I'm trying to be careful not to nail anything definitely down for you to say that's the lie. We need to be actively helping each other come back to the Bible because that's where we find our knowledge of Jesus. And our knowledge of Jesus gives us everything that we need for life and godliness. And so we keep wanting to live with Jesus as our Lord, and it's an ongoing work. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would forgive us for being normal. Lord, please forgive us for caving in to our sinful nature. Please forgive us for belittling your authority over us. Lord, we pray that we would know true forgiveness in Jesus, his finished work on the cross. And Lord, we pray that you'd help each one of us to be living for Jesus in everything and in every way. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.